0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to episode 13 of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I am your host, Kevin Brown. Uh, now that we've finished the review of all the songs on the debut album, it's time to talk to a fellow Pettyhead about Tom's music, their association with it, and dig into that first album a little bit. My guest for this first album rap episode is the wonderful Dallas Heliker, a California native who has met Tom a couple of times, been to a whole bunch of shows, hosted an episode of The Last DJ on Tom Petty Radio on Sirius XM, and is just the nicest guy you could wish to talk to. We were having so much fun just chatting that I, I will admit that I missed a few points I wanted to cover, but I hope that the relaxed nature of our conversation makes up for that. I'm sure it will. For these album rap episodes, I wrote a set of 10 quick fire questions and it's going to be hard for anyone to top Dallas's response to question 8 so look out for that anyway enough babbling from me sit back relax and enjoy my conversation with Dallas Heliker and I'll see you later for my usual postamble to the episode <laughs>
1: Okay, so I was uh, born in California, raised here um in the Sacramento area, kind of out in the country, about 20 minutes from where I am now in Elk Grove, which is kind of just south of Sacramento. Um so I was raised here and uh, I've lived here pretty much my whole life. I went to school in down in Southern California and um and uh but you know, I've been basically in the Northern California area for my whole life. Um music-wise, um, you know, I kind of grew up in a, I was, you know, one of three boys in the family and my dad was a big music fan. And so he'd had a, his record player and he would play all kinds of music, classical music, jazz, folk, um, and a lot of classic rock. And so I got a, a big dose of the Beatles and the stones and Led Zeppelin and Fleetwood Mac. And, you know, every, you know, even going up to Canada, like the guess who, and, you know, yep. all kinds of, of, um, the the classic rock uh, artists, and Tom Petty was just you know one amongst the mix you know, and we listened to the classic rock radio, and so I was familiar with the big hits um, that they play on the radio, but I I didn't go too much deeper than that, um, but uh, I was familiar with his music, and then over time I kind of. Started listening to Wildflowers, like I when I started driving, you know, in high school, I had that CD and I l- listened to that, and then that kind of kind of got me into, you know, deeper into the the petty world, and uh, from there I just kind of went through every album and kind of got kind of obsessed with it and and, uh, and uh, you know got familiar with the whole catalog. So was
0: that that was the tipping point. Then Wildflowers, you would say that was that sort of was that your sort of Damascene thing where it's like, oh wait, this guy's really really yes. really
1: good that did it that wildflowers i was probably 16 and and listening to wildflowers and that i just would listen to it over and over i just loved every song on that on that album and then 99 when i graduated high school echo came out and that was great too it was kind of like a you know a little bit more of a garage band type of follow-up to yeah um, wildflowers but very solid also love that loved echo and then um from there i i just kind of went back and went kind of in reverse order but i kind of went back to each album you know going back in time and and would spend a few weeks uh maybe a month with each one and just listen to it over and over and i just that was just my kind of my soundtrack and by then like the ipod had come out and i would just load up everything on the ipod yeah it's crazy i mean it's so funny because i'd Again, there's a lot of um,
0: parallels with my experience with it, too. And so, obviously, I mean, I, I grew up exact same thing. Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, The Kinks, The Who, Queen, The Beatles, you know, all mm-hmm. those bands. And Tom Petty just wasn't on our radar. And, of course, when you're young, you listen to what your parents listen to. And Tom right. Petty wasn't really being played on mainstream UK radio. I mean, I don't know whether he broke there early, but and I remember buying Full Moon Fever on cassette. And I thought, yeah, some good songs on here. But I didn't. it still didn't quite bite me. And then about, mm-hmm. and unfortunately it was, it was quite recent, but about eight, seven or eight years ago, I did the same thing. I thought, well, I'm going to, I like Tom Petty and I'm, I've sort of absorbed more of his music because I listened to, it's it's more um prevalent on Canadian radio. And, and a lot of my friends would listen to him. So I went back and thought, well, I'll just start listening to the albums. And I listened to the first album and listened to You're Going to Get It. And then I listened to Damn the Torpedoes and Hard Promises. And at that point you think. Well, wait a minute. This this is not just sort of a a greatest hits kind of musician. This is a real songwriter who's putting together a body of work. And then the same thing right. about I don't know it would have been about five years ago when I listened to Wildflowers and just sat down and actually listened to it, and just blew my mind. And that was like yeah. that was the moment. That was the moment that I became a real Tom Petty fan. And right, it's just, and it's the, a perfect it, album.
1: And it's it's a lot. It's different than all a lot of other artists. Like I'll I'll buy an album. And there will be a few songs on the album that are great and some that are okay and then some that are clunkers, you know. You know, you heard all the, the songs on the radio, I did, and the greatest hits, you know, you hear that so many times. Those hits become so a little overplayed. Yeah, they're great songs, but, you know, once you've heard them hundreds of times, it loses a little of the appeal. But then there, you go to that second tier and there's so many, it opens up so many other songs that are just as good as those greatest hits, they just didn't. Uh, they just weren't picked as the
0: singles. The first album's a really good example of that, I think, too. Right, because you know, American Girl, and I, I said this on on, my, on the American Girl episode. It's been it has been played to death on the radio, and everyone knows that song. I mean, there's not very many people, certainly not of our generation, that wouldn't know that song. You've heard it; it's been around forever. Everyone's heard it. You've heard it in the grocery store. You've yeah, heard it on every. I,
1: I can name three movies it's in, or four, <laughs>
0: but when you actually listen to it again as a music fan as a musician with a critically you think it's there's a reason why it's lasted as long as it has because it's a brilliant song it's brilliantly it written it's brilliantly arranged there's no fat on it there's no there's nothing there that doesn't need
1: to be and everything does need to be there it's just it, you hear that song and it's just it's it's perfect you can't pick out anything that you would change and it's it's so much in the zeitgeist and in the air and uh and uh, what a great, really great song!
0: Yeah, and written on the Fourth of July in the bicentennial year. I mean, it just doesn't get more American than that, right? You know, it's just it sort of typifies the the whole mood
1: of the, what you I imagine the mood of the country was at that time. To finish the album with that song, it's like you get to the end and okay, wow, what's <laughs> next? Right? It's kind yeah. of an interesting way to do it. Probably, if you go back and do it again, maybe you throw that on first. You know, in in like the modern age of like you know, how you build an album and you want the best song to be towards the beginning because you want to hook them right away. Yep. And uh, and that wasn't the case. And there's probably a lot of things that are, you know, decisions that were made that are. Well, it did in the end. And I mean, and I asked that question,
0: and I was, when I was talking to John Scott, I totally forgot to bring that up with him because the track order, I totally agree. Like that takes, first of all, balls of steel to put that at track 10. Like, holy crap. Yes. I mean, every other band, that's their best song. That's the best song off their first five albums, easy, right? Yeah. So to put it at track 10, I wonder if I know that the album cover was a problem because, you know, everyone thought he's a punk. He's got a leather jacket. He's got the bullets at that time, but we're not promoting punk. We don't want to deal with it exactly. You know, it's just so that it doesn't send the right image necessarily. And then again, if when you throw in with Rocking Around with You is your first track, which does have a bit of an edge to it and that sort of it's a little bit more punk than rock in some ways or in certainly an energy. So I wonder if that kind of also impeded the sort of the success of that album before john scott got involved it
1: it it might have and it's it's an odd one to start with kind of to me i mean it it does take a while to get to like you mentioned in when you in your review of that of the first song takes a while to get to the the even when he comes in to start the 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 first verse and um it takes a little while to get going and it's really kind of an odd song in the heartbreakers catalog in the grand scheme of things. Like it's not really like anything else that they have. Um, So it was an interesting choice as a starter, but um, uh, but the whole first album really is, you know, it's, there's so much variety in it. Yeah, Like there's so many different songs and it could just be, you know, kind of the disjointed nature of that first album where there's different players on different tracks and, and it kind of, Is an interesting uh, album, for sure, because it's not really like anything else in their whole catalog.
0: No, I totally agree. And that's exactly my perspective on it as well, is that it it, it does have that disjointed nature to it. And again, like you said, I mean, it's different players, different studios, you know, Mm -hmm. in different sort of, you know, Tom Petty was originally on some of the tracks while they were going to promote him as a, a solo artist. And right. then he sort of got the heartbreakers after you know the first couple of sessions and brought them in and everything. So of course that's going to change the dynamic of how you play with a band versus session guys. It's one of those weird ones that even though there isn't like a through line and there's not a consistent feel, you've got to damn the torpedoes, hard promises. You really get that sort of sense of an album. It's weirdly, it's bigger than the sum of its parts. You know what I mean? Like it it, it it still hits because it's so weird and because it's so different, I think. And you you're not listening to the same song over and over. And again, I don't know how any serious music person back in the day at these labels listened to that album and just didn't see that lightning in the bottle that they talk about. Because seriously, if you break down, as soon as you get to breakdown, okay, rocking around with you, I can see maybe you can think they're a bit punk. As soon as you get to breakdown, this is that's a legendary blues track. And it's straight up blues. So how do you how
1: do you draw a punk line there? You know what I mean, right? And and then when you get to hometown blues, it's mm-hmm. you know it's completely like almost country type of mud crutch type yeah. of song. It's a so shuffle. It's, it's a,
0: a great little shuffle, right? You know, you move your shoulders to that song,
1: right? And then and it's very deep album. You know, there's yeah, there's the two big hits, and then anything that's rock and roll. But you got the wild one forever, and you got fooled again, and you've got Luna, and you've got you know. Yep. It's, it's it's very deep album and um it probably doesn't get as much credit as it should um uh, just because there's so much other so many other big albums to compete with in their yeah. whole catalog just the sort of the production
0: value and and of course i mean tom's talked about and mike campbell's talked about this they just became so much better musicians they they learned they're better at their craft they're better songwriter you know stan became a better drummer over time mike became a better guitarist and of course that's going to happen as you play thousands and thousands of shows and thousands of hours so to sort of and I think I got in a little bit of trouble on the Tom Petty Nation by I published my ratings for the first five songs. Right. Because I think the first side of that album is the you know weaker of the two sides, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: again, if you're gonna put that album up against the, the the best albums that he wrote, it it's not it's not there yet because they're a young right. band. And like you said, they're they're in the studio and you're telling Mike Campbell, well, yeah, you've got we can give you eight tracks of guitar. Of course, he's just going to go crazy. It's a kid in a sure. candy store, right? So yeah. it, it doesn't lend itself to sort of being um, overly selective about what you're doing, I think, which which they did when they, when they really hit on things like American Girl, and I would say Fooled Again. That's when they do trim things back
1: and just focus on what's the bones of this song. That's where the strength is to me. Right. Well, I mean, like Tom Petty Nation the group is they're so they're so positive like it's such a positive group yeah if you are rating a song lower than you know that could be someone's favorite song yeah so it's but like you said they can't all be tens you know you have to compare them uh if if you rate them all a 10 it's not gonna meet it's gonna be meaningless there's no point in rating it but you know objectively uh you know hometown blues isn't as good as american girl and there's gonna be a a range there of, of ratings so it it's it's tough but uh it's a tough crowd when you're saying anything that could be perceived as negative, yeah, for but sure. it's just uh trying to you know try to do the rating. I like it <laughs> right, and it generates some discussion and people can debate it and uh yeah. maybe you're being unfair to that one, yeah. um, you know, I think if you' you know rated American girl a six or something, then you probably <laughs> would have gotten thrown out of there but uh <laughs> But uh, okay. yeah I mean just in general though I mean that uh, the the idea of the podcast I think is is wonderful cuz you've got this it's a massive undertaking you know you're going to be once a week for I don't I don't know how many years it is but it's uh <laughs> it's a it's a long long run but I mean it's it's kind of great because um you get to really dig into the songs and um just you know the the first uh, album was you know your reviews are are just so spot on and you have mentioned things uh, musically that I wouldn't even have noticed if I, you know, you know, and I've heard the song so many times so I I get to hear it again and hear new things. And uh, it's good to kind of spend 15 minutes a week celebrating these songs. And, you know, you're kind of taking your time. You're not rushing it. You're just going to go through the whole thing. And uh, it's, it's fantastic. It's the, the first podcast I click on when it, when it comes up on my feed. So it's uh it's been great so far.
0: Oh, thanks, man. I, I yeah, I really appreciate it. I mean, and you obviously you know as a podcaster yourself, you throw these things out into the world and you don't really know if anyone's gonna hook into it. So when you actually get feedback from people who've clearly listened to what you're doing, it's it's nice, you know. It's it's really sort of it's gratifying. And I think that as you say that, for me, getting into those songs at that level and really sort of listening, to, okay, I'm gonna all I'm gonna do is listen to the drums now. What's Stan doing What's he doing on the hats? Where, where's the, what's the tempo coming from? Where does that come from? What's Ron doing on the bass? And usually what Ron's doing on the bass is as little as possible just to hold things together, which is he's just he's just be- one of the best pocket bass players of all time. But really, it gives you, I think, a much more rounded appreciation for the music. And that's one of the reasons that I just decided to do this. I thought, well, you know, if, when you listen to music at the level that a musician does, and I, you're a musician too, I think you, you play guitar or? I, I do a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so you, you just... You do tend to listen to music a little bit differently because you can separate it out, which I don't think non-musicians do that quite as easily or as readily. Um, so the appreciation I've got, certainly for this first album that I didn't rate as highly, you know, when I first the first few times I listened to it, I've got much more of an appreciation for it now just because I've actually sat down and learn about the songs too. Right, when you get the background from the songs, you think, oh, okay. Well, there's a reason why Hometown Blues sounds so different because Dunn's playing bass. Well, that explains mm-hmm. a whole hell of a lot because he plays totally different to Ron Blair. Doesn't play anything near the same. It's not got the same background, the same influences, you know. You know. So Mm -hmm. I found that super cool, and I've really enjoyed sort of digging into him to this level. So I, like I said, I very much appreciate your your support. That's very kind of you to say.
1: Yeah, and what's good is that you know, Tom Petty Nation and the whole Tom Petty online community is there's so many people that are just um, so you know, a hundred percent in on on his music, and uh, it's a very supportive community and so it's a good place to kind of put it out there and I, I guarantee you you know it's just going to continue to grow because um you know the the whole tom petty community is you know they want to to uh dive into this stuff and um you know just you know get as much enjoyment out of it as possible and it's a it's a reason to go back and listen to these songs um and really dig into them and it's it's uh, it's been great so do you, obviously as a music fan
0: generally as we all are I mean, I'm a huge Queen fan. I'm a huge Beatles fan, but I've never really quite had the same sense of community that I get with Tom Petty. And I, I don't, I've never, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that is. Why he connects so differently. And I think that some of it is, it goes beyond the music. People really like him as a person because he was so mm-hmm. authentic and so genuine about everything he did. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what, what is it that's just that little bit different about Tom Petty's fan base?
1: Maybe it's just that he is one of the coolest people on the planet. I mean, there's, you know, he was always just, you know, the epitome of cool. Like when you think of cool, you think of Tom Petty. And so there's just that on the very surface. But then I think his music spoke to people in so many different ways. Like his songs are so open, you know, they're, they're not super specific. So they can really mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And uh, and it just comes across as so personal that you kind of feel this connection with him. And then he was always on the, on the side of the fans. He was always trying to keep the record prices low and keep the ticket prices low. And you yeah. know he was always kind of the man of the people. And I, I just think that that kind of translated over you know the forty years. Um, you know, people kind of glommed onto that, and it seemed like to me that over the course of his career, it, he only continued to get bigger and bigger, and the fans kept getting younger and younger it wasn't just <laughs> at these shows it wasn't just you know 50 60 year olds going to the tom petty concert it was younger people um and his music spoke to multiple generations when did, when did that change for you then so obviously then you know, we all have bands
0: we love growing up and it's it tends to be you know i mean the first time i heard black dog on led Zeppelin, four, you know your first time you hear that opening riff it's just it's like oh this is for me this is my music but you don't I didn't connect with the band until much, much later in life when I started listened. you know I started playing drums and now I'm into John Bonham and you started reading about the history. Do you remember a point when it became more more than the music for you and you sort of sort of fell in love with Tom Petty as that sort of advocate and as that person?
1: Yeah, so it was all only the albums to begin with. I listened to all the albums and it was just the music, and I didn't really know the band that much and then in two thousand and three they put out that soundstage concert uh on PBS and um the chicago shows they uh, there's a couple shows that they recorded and kind of spliced them all together yeah and put out this DVD that i bought and watched and that just uh all of a sudden it's about the band for me cuz it, it, just the musicianship and you and there's certain songs on there they they're all good there's so many covers of like old rock songs and yeah. blues songs and stuff that were fantastic every song on there is great but you see like the communication between the band and you see the dynamic between mike and ben and you know that just that you can see them holding back and kind of making space for each other and all working together and the eye contact and yeah it was just that 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 show the way they recorded it and you know perfect well it wasn't even perfect hg i I think they need a blue ray one there that you know there's could be another better version of that but even at at the time it looked so good and it sounded so good on 5.1 it was uh that did it i was like okay well this i gotta see these guys and so i didn't see them until they came to sacramento in in 2005 but um but uh and then that first show that was it you know that that was uh the best thing i've ever seen and from then on out it was go to as many Tom Petty shows as I can. And it's a really good point there. I
0: think that the idea that it's a band, there's there's a, a, I might be that sure you're talking about the the PBS. When they do Walls Mm -hmm. and when Benmont goes into his piano solo, Mike and Tom both look over at him at the same time. And it's that thing of they're just watching their friend just ripping out a great solo. And I love that. Yeah. Getting to see that live. Yeah. And... That,
1: if you, if you let PBS thing, if you could get that and, and there's all the songs are good, but Melinda, they, they played a version of Melinda and, you know, during Benmont Tench's piano solo there, and they're kind of Tom and, and Mike are all kind of looking at each other and just, you know just feeding off each other it's just an amazing thing it gives me goosebumps just now thinking about it so i mean it's it was such a good good performance and so seeing them live you know there was never a bad show it was always um always great and you know when people play together for 30 40 years you know you end up building that chemistry that you just can't get any other way it's just uh thousands of hours of playing together you're going to build up uh, that magic, and they yeah. certainly did that. But uh, you know, they always had a good time playing together. I think, you know, even at the end when you know Tom was in pain with his yeah. his knee and everything, when those lights came on and they were playing, you know, they were everything was perfect. Then I is was was the impression that I always got. Yeah, but when you are Tom Petty, you've got twenty of those <laughs> yes, songs, absolutely. Yeah. Right, so you <laughs> you you, you got to leave something off, otherwise, it, you know, so. <laughs> it was tough but uh
0: what would be the what would, was there a standout concert that you would pick out if like if that if there was one where you said that's the that was the best one that was the one where it was just everything was perfect
1: well the first one obviously it's hard to to yeah. compete with that because it's just you know your sensation overload yes. um probably the one i would i I'd, think back to the the best was just seeing mud crutch at the Fillmore, the first mud crutch uh, oh, no when way. they first got together um so um or I, I think at the at the troubadour i would have to say um in la that show um i went to a few on the on the mud crutch that first mud crutch tour but there was one night where they were really just locked in and they would play they would play covers like they didn't play any heartbreaker songs. They just right. played covers and their mud crutch one album. Right. And that was it. They didn't play. They did not want to lean on anything else. So they did Bob Dylan songs and they did, um, you know, whatever they came to mind really. And some of them were like, you know, songs that they had done back in the seventies when they were together the first time. And, uh, it was just uh you know you had three Hall of Famers on on the stage <laughs> and they were just completely dialed in but you're they were playing to 600 people or you know 400 people yeah. and um and uh, the energy in that room was was something else and it was just so such a small intimate thing that um uh that was that's a tough one to tough one to beat and yeah. it didn't play any hits you know the first time I went to the Mudcrutch show I maybe heard the album the day before maybe you know it was like <laughs> right. brand new songs so I didn't know any of the songs that they were playing but yeah. it was a very unique experience yeah and I was thinking about that too
0: like how cool is that to to be at that level that Tom Petty and Mike Campbell and Ben Montage were at, to, to turn around and just say you know what we should do we should get Tom back out and we should put Mud Crutch back together and just go tour that and play 600 Seaters we really that you're not doing that for the money that's just for the love of playing I, and the love of playing with your they, friends. They right? We're losing money on yes. that whole venture.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think even losing money on you know, when they did the, the Fonda and the beacon at the end, you know, it's such a big operation that yep. to to play a venue that small and only sell, you know, twelve hundred tickets instead of fifteen thousand, you know, you it's it's hard to make that make that work. But, yeah. you know, they wanted to challenge themselves and in and change things up and do things differently and be able to play a a set list that featured a little some more covers or some lesser known songs and that allowed them to do that and and it was was certainly great i'm I'm sure at some point we're going to see some live releases from some of those uh later runs because there were some great great songs that they played on those shows we're going to, yeah, we're going to pl- play Bo Diddley and we're going to play JJ Cale and we're going to play
0: all these old acts. And I don't know about you, but like, there's all these artists that they were that they were inspired by. And I always do this when I go down rabbit holes with artists. You get into, well, what were their influences? Where does that come from? Oh, holy shit, I can hear that. That's, oh yeah, that's, I understand where that comes from. That Bo Diddley beat. Yeah, I hear that mm-hmm. now. I know where that's coming from, you know?
1: So, I mean, um, that was uh, in April, 2008. And we were at the show, and um, there was a, we were kind of in the troubadour waiting for the show to begin. And I was, you know, drinking a beer, um, talking to my friend Jeff, and we were talking to this couple that was there, um, just kind of shooting, shooting the shit. Uh, the guy turns and kind of knocks my beer and and uh, <laughs> spills it, and uh, so he goes and he buys me another beer. I said, "Oh, thank you so much," you know. And we're chatting, and then the show starts and. About in great show, and then we 're about halfway through, and the guy turns to me and says, "Hey, uh, Prince is about to take the stage at Coachella uh, i 've got a helicopter standing by, and we can get there by the time it kicks off. I think I turned to the guy and said No, we'll we'll stay for mud crutch i 've gone back and looked at the YouTube clips from Coachella that night yeah and and Prince when Prince played. And it looks like it was a good show, but I'm very, I'm <laughs> happy I stuck with Mud Crutch.
0: <laughs> I always think that, you know, there's that clip obviously at the was it Hall of Fame when Prince and Tom play while my guitar is mm-hmm. weeps. And there's a little again, there's a little thing there, we talk about that chemistry between bandmates where Prince looks over and he's kind of grinning, and his eye line he's kind of gotta be looking at Tom Petty. And then they cut to the band and Tom's grinning too, and you think, Well, those guys, first of all, both great musicians. But also, again, that thing. I think maybe they had that chemistry where they both stuck it to the label and had that mm-hmm. sort of that sort of thing. So, but man, turning yeah, turning down a helicopter ride to see Prince—that's hardcore, <laughs> dude. That's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was that was funny. But um, yeah, that perform that that uh, rock and roll Hall of Fame. Every once a week, it comes up on, on um, you know someone yeah. posts a video to it, and I'll click on that, and oh man, it's it's something else. Yeah,
0: and when he drops, man. When he, I mean. What a performer, you know. I mean, and yeah, Tom Petty, of course. Danny Harrison and, is oh, just, yeah. is, is just loving it. He's so <laughs> amused by by that. It's so funny too, because it's it's Danny Harrison, like, dude, your your dad was George Harrison, like, you would think that, <laughs> but that childlike wonder of this is this is awesome. This is the best thing ever, you know. But I think yeah. look, who he's on stage with. My God, what a flipping cast that is. Yeah. And I think about that too, that it, you know. I, again, I think I got into the to Tom Petty mainly through the Wilburys because my dad listened to the Wilburys because he's a big Beatles fan. And so that, I think that was my first exposure, like even before Full Moon Fever. I, th- I, I like I used to think that, well, T- Tom Petty, like they must have was that Like, why is he in? Because, you know, you've got Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan, George Harrison. Jeff Lynn was pretty big in my childhood, but Tom Petty was. So I always kind of I wondered what that dynamic must have been. But then, of course, once I've learned now, it's like, well, he was every bit there equal. Of course he was. Like, you know, right? he was, he was, he was a bandmate there, you know.
1: That's just one of those things where they were all just, it just kind of organically came together. Like yeah. Tom had just toured with Bob around the whole world for two years. And then Jeff had just produced George's album. And now he's producing Tom's album. And it's just kind of this group kind of coalesced together. And, you know, you got some of the best songwriters of all time in oh, one room, um, those guys were just having fun and there was so much talent in the room that these albums just kind of appeared.
0: That's the great story too. You know, they
1: Tom said, you know, they they would
0: sit down and they'd sort of jam it out and they'd, they'd try and write a song in a day and they'd do as much recording as they could. And then once they finished, they'd just sit around and get Roy Orbison to tell them stories about hanging out with Elvis. Because <laughs> <So, yeah. laughs> why wouldn't you? <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about the uh, Sirius XM. Uh, show and you did the last DJ.
1: Now the hardest thing is picking five songs. I'm, I mean, it's just <laughs> kind of a random thing, you know, there's so many good ones. And, yeah. uh, and you know, when, so whoever's, whoever's five, um, they're always, they're always good to hear. So, and you'll have a reason why they picked them and stuff. So, um, it's been, that's been fun to listen to. Um, it's so popular people every, all the time are posting on, on Tom Petty nation, um, you know, hey, how long did it take? I yes. submitted it four months ago, and they're doing three a week. And, um, you know, but it's there's a, a big backlog. Yeah. And uh, so it, I think, you know, you got to just be patient, and, and your time will come.
0: So talking about that then, you said, like, picking five songs is damn near impossible because it just depends on what mood you're in, what you want to listen to. How did you attack that then? Did you, did you sort of think, well, I'll pick – five songs that are sentimentally important or five songs that fit as five songs or is thematically how did you attack it
1: i was trying to put together a entertaining half hour that would allow me to kind of tell my tom petty story through the songs so i i uh i started out with Time to Move On. Okay. Um, I uh, Time to Move On was my favorite. The first time I listened to Wildflowers, I have a different favorite now, but the first time I heard it, that was my favorite. You know, that... Um, I just love that song. So I did that yeah. one as my first song. I played Listen to Her Heart because I was trying to mix in like a, a hit. You know, I didn't want to do five obscure songs. So yeah. I picked a really good uh, uh, hit song to play. And then I went into... Um, down south i played a live version i wanted to have a live version so i played uh down south off the live anthology and um when i met tom that i i told him um no i didn't i didn't tell him that i told him i like the trip to pirate's cove so i played uh the trip to pirate's cove and then i also played i finished it out with um shadow people which the second time I met Tom, I said, I told him how much I like shadow people. So the two songs that I told him personally that I liked, I told him I played those two and then a hit, a live one. And then, uh, then the, the song that kind of got me into it. So that was kind of my, my set list there. And, uh, as soon as they announced it, you know, I was like, uh, (laughs) I I sent the email in and they wrote back and, you know, I said, okay. And then I, I spent probably it's a half hour show. I probably spent like eight hours recording it, because I would go it over and over. And I wanted it to sound like not rehearsed, but you know, so I I wanted to say it enough times so where it was uh, it sounded natural, and I wasn't reading it anymore. And so it it was a, a process. But by the time I sent it in, it was probably four four months or so until I got picked. You know, but um, but it was a, a fun experience for sure
0: yeah it's a super cool segment of that show and I think you know and it was like I said it was the driving idea behind doing this with my podcast is getting that sort of experience from other people it it brings that sort of sense of community into into sharp focus and I think that's one of the things we all love about Tom Penny nation is sharing those stories and whatnot um going through those songs and then actually meeting Tom and telling him about you know a couple of those different songs what was that interaction like how did he receive that was he sort of was he sort of very humble about those songs, or did he say anything back?
1: Or he, um, he was very kind of very kind of shy. Like, uh, yeah. you know, they came in and we did this at like a, a radio studio in LA, and they had like maybe twenty folding chairs, and we all sat there. And then they would, he sat across maybe six, eight feet away at a table with the microphones, and yeah. May Griffin, the host, and they, um, they would ask. It was a buried treasure uh, fifth anniversary show. So they would chat a little bit, tell some stories, and then they'd play a song and Tom would go out into the parking lot during the song and probably have a smoke, come back. Right. And then they would keep chatting again. And then they would pass the microphone from one person to the next. And we would ask our, um, our question on the air and then Tom would answer it. And then they'd move on to the next person. And then afterwards, um, they had kind of a, a meet and greet where, they gave us this album and the second album. And then I brought my damn, the torpedoes album cover. Yep. And, uh, so they got to go through and, and he would sign something for us. And then it was at that point where, you know, I could say a couple of things. And so I said, um, and Mojo had just come out and I said, Hey Tom, I'm a huge fan. Um, love mojo. And I really like the trip to Pirates Cove. And he said, Oh, you know, great. I'm glad you like that or whatever. And then he signed my album and then that was it, you know? Yeah. And then uh next person. Right. So it kind of moved through the line. Um, but you know, very nice, but very, um, kind of reserved. Uh, you know, we're all a bunch of strangers to him and, uh, you know, he wasn't, you know, too outgoing or anything like that. He was just, you know, very, very nice guy. And then afterward we went up and took our picture with him and, uh, you know kind of shook his hand or whatever and then uh we were on our way and then the tom petty people they were very nice class act they like took this picture here on the wall here and yeah. uh they they took the picture and then they sent us like a framed picture of us with tom you oh know? cool and uh so it wasn't you know the they took a lot of time to like to uh do that and then they send us like a signed mojo uh cd and you know they just send us a bunch of stuff you know for for doing it so it was a very very cool experience yeah and like you said i mean i know that he was a shy it's funny eh, because you always think about that
0: where these rock and roll stars and they're they're on stage just slaying it night after night but off stage they're very you know quite often quite soft-spoken and because they're just they're artists, you know they're quite sensitive in in most cases. So to throw someone in like that into a room, like a stark, probably quite well lit room with twenty people on chairs staring at them, it's not really conducive to having a one to one conversation, really, right? Right.
1: So. No, I I didn't think he was super comfortable in that situation. Yeah, um, he's just kind of a little bit out of the element. I think he would rather be on stage with twenty thousand people than yeah. be in a room with fifty people or whatever. So. um but it was a uh, it was cool. It was a very very uh, great experience, and it was good to good to meet him. Um, and uh, I got to do it again a couple of years later. So it was it was uh, definitely uh, good that Sirius was able to put on those events, and a couple fans got to go to them.
0: So what was the second event then? Was that because you said that the the other one was
1: that was uh, the fifth anniversary Sorry, okay, of right. the uh, buried treasure show, right? And um, that was one where online I just submitted a question. And then they chose it and then I got to go down there. Um the second time was for the release of Hypnotic Eye. And so they did a special town hall meeting where Jim Ladd hosted it and the okay. same thing. There was, you know, twenty people that got to ask questions on the air. And um and uh same 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 format basically. Jim, Ladd and Tom would, would tell stories and, and play some songs, and then we would pass the mic down and, and uh ask our question. Yeah.
0: I mean, again, like I, I talk to friends who are musicians and music fans and some people who are sort of, you know, peripherally Tom Petty fans. I say, listen to Hypnotic Eye. I mean, that album is, for, for for 16th album from a band that's been around for a long time, the energy and the, the just the strength of the songs on that album is off the charts. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, this, is, this isn't a band on the wind down. That's a band still in the ascendancy to me.
1: You know. I know. And that's the, the saddest thing about it is yeah. that – they were just still, you know, still h- h- hitting their stride. You know, Like between the the mudcrutch releases and yeah. Mojo and then Hypnotic Eye, they they were put they were um, breaking new ground and exploring new territories for them as a band. And yeah. they were, you know, continuing to push it. They weren't. It was no retreads of what they were doing before. It was, uh, you know, a, a whole different thing. Yeah, and fa- I mean the, the the song that kind of really bit me on that album
0: is Fault Lines. Just that that Mike's guitar is so aggressive and so dirty, yeah. and it's mixed so kind of flat. It just sounds right. so. It, again, it's that garage thing. Like Akio's got a little bit of that, but it's got that sound right. to it. It's just this. But yeah, then
1: Ferroni has this like bossa oh. nova beat that
0: yeah. like we're. Where do you even come up with that? That those bell, those bell hits he's doing on the cymbals are just—it's crazy. Like trying to get that pattern, that I, sit, I try and play that song. It's really freaking hard, man. And it sounds like it should be simple, but it really, really isn't. You
1: know? Right. There, there was a YouTube video where like he like demonstrated that the beat to that song, and it's not on YouTube anymore. But it was the greatest thing to watch him like pull that off. Uh, just yeah, you know, man. just him and behind a kit. Um, so many good songs on that album. Um, but, you know, Mojo too, it was just, you know, they were, they weren't trying to please anybody anymore. Yeah. They were just playing for themselves and they were playing in that clubhouse from Mud Crutch 1 on. They yeah. just played in that, in that room. Uh, they had, they, they just played live, you know, with, you know, uh, on the floor yeah. and they mic things as best as they could. And, and they had a pretty good setup there that worked for them. And they were completely comfortable there, and they could just do do what they wanted. And they, at that point, they're not trying to please a record company or anybody else. They're just putting out, trying to make the best record they can with what they want to play at that time. And if that's bluesy mojo, great. If that's taking it back a little bit more towards you know the the mainstream rock and roll with a guy, you know, even better. So it was. Uh, they sure finished on a good note, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, for
0: sure. Well, again, in Sandwich in there, Last DJ, which, you know, still, again, you've got a, a, a sort of an established Hall of Fame rock and roll band still giving the middle finger to the record company and still sort of on a major label. Even mm-hmm. to, you know, the song Joe is one of my favorites off that track. It's just, it's so searing and biting in its cynicism, but beautifully played and fits in perfectly. And it's just a, such a great album. I think, it's again, The Last DJ is another one that sort of, I think flies under the radar a little bit for the hardcore fans. All we all love it, obviously, but for people who don't know the catalog in any in any depth, it's one of those that might get missed every now and again. Same as and I, I think um, Long After Dark fits into that category as well. Where I think it's it, it's that part of that you know the trilogy of um, Jimmy Iovine albums, and I know that he did Southern Southern Accents too, but those really those three I think you know, um, Damn the Torpedoes, Hard Promises, and Long After Dark. That's always a set to me. That feels like right. a really sort of cohesive set. And Long After right. Dark is of the th- of those three, the one that people tend to not regard as highly. I don't really know where that comes from because it's a great album. Sounds great. The songwriting's strong. It fits. Everything's cohesive. So I don't really know where that right. sort of,
1: why it drops off people's radar. I don't know. And and Tom never seemed to really much care for that album. Yeah. Like he felt like there were some songs that should have been on there and I don't think it turned out the way he liked it. And so it kind of never really got the attention in in the live sets or or anything like that but uh it is a very good album. And then you get, you know, all these songs coming out now that are kind of like would 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 have been on there. <laughs> yeah. um, you kind of get an idea of what Tom might have wanted it to be. Um I mentioned the last DJ though. That is that's that's a whole another thing. It's like um <laughs> there's so many good songs and and rockers on that and uh and it's also, and it tells that story throughout it. Um, you know, it's kind of the most theme-specific yeah. album in the whole catalog.
0: It's probably the closest they ever came
1: to sort of a concept album, right?
0: Which which really is what it, it is. is it's, yeah. it's, like I said, it's a narrative from start to finish. And I think there are a couple of songs in there that not filler, but they're, they're sort of placeholders to give some of those other tracks time to breathe. But, you know, When Money mm-hmm. Becomes King, I mean, what a friggin' song that is. Just... Yeah. You the lyrically, and you think we've all had that experience. We've all had the experience of seeing our he like I said, I saw Van Halen, and that was exactly my experience. I'm up in the nosebleeds and Van Halen's talking shit about this being the butt. It's like, dude, you've lost there's nothing in your eyes anymore. You're just going through the motions now.
1: Right. Broke my and heart. He comes out and, and sings his new light beer commercial, <laughs> yes. and all the music gives him is a craving for light beer. <laughs> and it's it's so funny. And uh And it's so true. And it's things that Tom never did. You know, he, he stuck to his guns his whole career and, uh, you know, he never had a sponsor. He never, uh, you know, you don't hear his songs today in commercials at all. And which, which is not the case for pretty much every other artist. So, um, you know, he was always, always true to his, um, his ideals there.
0: Well, it rubbed off on certain people too, right? You get, oh, it's like Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters, are, they're the same. Like their concert tickets are not top tier pricing. They could charge 120, 130, 140 for their tickets. They don't. And they play mm-hmm. three hours. And they've got that same thing where you've got that sense of, and of course, you know, obviously Dave played with Tom on SNL and right. almost, that would have been weird Hey, Can you imagine Dave Grohl being the Heartbreakers drummer? That would have been so weird. <laughs> I love Dave with Grohl, but I don't know if that's a great fit. <laughs>
1: yeah I, I mean it was fun for that one performance yep. on Saturday night live um but you know dave he had his own his own trip and he yep. was on his own his own journey um but I do think that um you know Tom influenced him a
0: lot and yeah sure that work ethic and again that sort of again playing for the fans and making sure that you're engaged them so when you like the concerts that you saw because you you've seen them how often did you see the heartbreakers
1: play live The Heartbreakers and mud crutch twenty five times Wow.
0: And so, what was the sort of set length? Like, how long did they usually play? Because they played quite a long time, right? Most of the time.
1: Yeah, usually about two hours. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's so funny. I mean, because it's not, it's like Foo Fighter territory, you know. Yep. Is, you know they they'll play three hours, but uh, yeah, you know the the Heartbreakers would would play usually around two hours, maybe a little more, um, but it was pretty consistent right. on that. Yeah, they would and they would mix in, you know, they'd mix in a, a cover or two. They'd they'd play a Wilbury song a lot in the last few years. Um they would, you know, they would they would try different stuff out for sure.
0: Yeah, my, one of my favorite and I don't think they ever played this one live, but um uh, Cool Dry Place is probably my favorite well, I'll end of the line probably, but then Cool Dry Place, just because it's such a Tom song. You know, it's got that it it's got that swagger and that little bit of cheeky sort of tongue in cheek kind of thing. But I would have loved to have seen that one played live. Well, I'm going to give you my ten quick fire questions. All right. So the so questions, questions are ques- questions are roughly quick fire. You may take as long as you like to answer. It's not no time pressure. So, okay. Okay. So number one, the 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 awful question: favorite Tom Petty album, and you can only pick one. If you to your grave, or you had to pick one. What's the one album
1: you're going to pick? I I, I guess I, I got to go Wildflowers. You know, that's that's the one. I mean, it's it's a long album. There's so many different styles and and songs and every every song on there is great so there's um you, you can't go wrong with wildflowers right on, that's man. the one okay question two mud crutch or traveling wilburys uh mud crutch okay uh, i love that band um i saw them i don't know six or seven times and uh you know those two albums there wasn't you know there was uh, plenty for just two albums of material there was uh, a lot there and, uh, and so much good music and uh you know, it's cool having Tom play the bass.
0: And super cool that he obviously at that stage sort of stepped back a little bit from complete control of the songwriting and allowed right. in a
1: lot more of the contributions and even the vocals from the other from the other guys in the band. Right. I think in the original Mud Crutch, Tom had a lot more. He took more center stage. Yeah. Um, but uh, when he brought them all back, he kind of said, oh, I'm just going to be one of the guys here and uh, everyone can contribute a song. On On that second album, everyone yeah. wrote a song. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted to kind of step back and play the bass and let other people, you know, share the spotlight. And, you know, he didn't have to do that, no. but, um, it's one of those things where I think maybe he always kind of regretted how Mudcrutch crutch ended and he wanted to kind of come back and revisit that. And, uh, and he kind of felt that there was some, some, something that he had left behind there that he needed to explore. And, and he got to do that for a couple albums, which was great.
0: Okay. Question three: If you could join the Heartbreakers on stage for one song, what would it be, and what
1: instrument would you play, or would you sing? I uh, I would play the guitar and sing "The Waiting." Uh, oh. I think that's like my my go to karaoke song, and uh, I I do a pretty good job of it, and I can play it on the guitar pretty well, so I think I could I could do a serviceable job on that.
0: Right on, money. Yeah, that's one of my one of my top probably top 10 top 15 songs for sure um and you've seen obviously seen a lot of tom petty concerts so this you might actually have an answer to this that is someone you have seen who would be your dream opening act at a tom petty concert
1: well you mentioned the foo fighters i think it's hard to go wrong there i think uh i'll I'll take them it'd
0: be very long uh, it'd be very long concert
1: very long yes um (laughs) In 2017, I went to Bottle Rock in Napa. It's a festival there. And uh, the Heartbreakers played Saturday and the Foo Fighters played Sunday. And uh, so that was a a pretty good lineup. Double whammy here. Okay. Your next question is, favorite band member other than Tom? It's unfair. It's it's (laughs) tough. Uh, I'm going to go with the co-captain, Mike Campbell. Um, I think without Mike, I don't think it it would not have been the same the same thing. I think he I mean he co-wrote a lot of songs with Tom. Um you know usually a couple on every album. Um but um but just that having that master guitar player uh and 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 his guitar playing is such that it's not a virtuoso guitar playing. He he pulls it back and plays just what you need to fit that song. Yeah. And without that I think the heartbreakers are missing a big part of it. Like I think that having that extra piece there, not only do you have a great songwriter um, and, and great songs, but you have that extra rock and roll uh, perfect guitar part for the song. And I, I don't, it doesn't work as well for me without that. I think Tom realized that too, because he glommed on to Mike from the beginning and says, you're in my band forever. Yeah. And, and he was there the whole way uh, through everything he went a whole career and then mojo he's like all right you know you just got the your the guitar you always wanted go ahead and open it up and shred and and he did you know and uh and that was a very cool thing about mojo but yes i mean mike was always there even when it's a uh, it's a solo record. It's still Mike Campbell and and Tom. You know, throughout yeah. the whole thing, it was always Mike was always a, a big part of it, and he was always always at his side. Yeah, it's just that and symbiosis, uh, right? That just that natural yeah. sort so, of, and again, just good friends. Like they genuinely loved each
0: other, and they and they were tight. So, and that makes a difference yeah. when you're writing with someone.
1: Sure, uh, they were brothers. I mean, yeah, they they without a doubt that's the case.
0: righty. if you could go see any Tom Petty concert from history, which one would it be? So one that you, the one that you didn't go to, which one would you go to if you could pick any?
1: When they played in London, they played at, uh, the, um, I don't know if it was the O2 or Royal Albert Hall or something on one of those early tours, like maybe 1981. And there is some, um, there are some cuts from that on the live anthology, uh, and just to be able to see that era of them, because I, I didn't see them until 2005, so yep. it was back, you know, the the post-Last DJ, Ron is back, Steve Roney's there, but I would like to go back and see when they're at the height of their game um, with the original five uh, with um, with Stan Lynch on drums and... And I, I really like the Heartbreakers live when Stan is the main harmony singer. Yes, um, I think he and Tom harmonize so well together. And um, it would have been good to see a young Tom and that original um, original band, and maybe a few years after they've been going. You know, post refugee, give them all the songs, Right. and then let's see them right there in that in that height. So maybe you know, nineteen eighty one or something.
0: Number seven. Walls Circus or Walls Number Three, which is the better version?
1: Oh, I like Walls Circus. It's Ah. a little bit, um, you know, that's got those Lindsey Buckingham high odd vocals in there, and it has all those, uh, you know, the 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 kind of the strange sounds, and the it's it's a little out there, but it's very fun and uh, a great song. So the walls, the other walls. Is uh is it number three? Yeah, or number yeah number three, is um it's it's good, it's kind of more of your classic uh heartbreakers sound. Yeah, but the the experimental stuff on Walls, uh, I, I enjoy when I hear that.
0: Okay, if you could pick any artist
1: to cover any
0: Tom Petty song, who would it be, and what song would they cover?
1: How about uh let's do um let's do uh, walls and let's have it it done by muse with matt bellamy and uh kind of a you know kind of a more electronic a little more um guitar forward uh and then obviously the vocals he can handle so um let's uh it's going to be a completely different version than the walls we know, but I think that would be, that'd be fun. Oh man. That's
0: yeah. I wouldn't have gone there in a million years. And I love that you did because now I want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to hear muse cover walls. That'd be so cool. Um, Question nine, the penultimate uh, question in this round. What song do you most frequently recommend to people who don't really know Tom's music?
1: Kind of hard to go wrong with, uh, learning to fly you know you could say free fall and everyone knows free fall and it's a fine song but i think i like learning to fly a little bit better and it it's in that kind of middle range of tom's catalog where he was really hitting his stride and it's it's a fantastic song and um i think it's accessible to a lot of people pretty much anything on greatest hits you can get away with uh recommending um and they're gonna like it but um yeah i'll go with i'll go with learning to fly and I love that,
0: the stripped back version on, you know, the live from Gatorville on End of Running Down a Dream, that version he does, it's just him. It's it's so evocative and so personal and that connection mm-hmm. with the crowd when they're singing, it's just, that's so cool. If you, Okay, so, and I don't have this as a question, but as a follow-up, if you had to pick a deep cut, someone who's a, a, a bit of a Tom Petty fan and now you're going to throw them a bit of a curveball and take them out of their comfort zone, what would you pick for that?
1: You know, how about uh, the trip to Pirate's Cove? Go to mojo and um i really love that song it's a story song it's got that kind of ethereal kind of yeah echoey type of thing and it has that peter green um guitar licks you know that um it's a it's a song that you know it never comes up very often people don't really know it um it's a pretty deep song but it's it's so enjoyable and lyrically so good um, I I'll go with that the trip to Pirates Cove.
0: It's got, I like the that phrase that it's story. It's a story song, and that's where I think you know most of the you know free falling and running down a dream and won't back down. They're all those are sort of tailor made for radio and they're, they're they're big hits. They've got a big hit written all over them. But Tom often was at his best when he was writing a story, something big, yeah. something big. Right? I mean that narrative. The way he could sort of plug a narrative together. That, those are mm-hmm. the ones that always fascinate me because it's like obviously you've got this idea in your head and it's 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 like a novel it's you know it, a novel written in three minutes and so he had right. that he had a talent for that that you know dylan has it and there's a few people have it but not many could do it as well as he did i don't think right
1: and there's a couple on highway companion like down south is kind of like that yeah. and and uh big weekend oh. you are know, little things where it's like you know you it's not a complete story, but they give you enough information where you can kind of fill it in. Like yeah. something big, you don't know what's going on there, but you can kind of guess what it is, you know? So he's not just telling it to you completely outright, Yeah, but, it, but you can, you listen to it and you can kind of fill in the gaps, but he was very good at those story songs where yeah. he wasn't too specific, but he gives you enough information, but you know, there's so many songs that, you know he could write love songs and yeah. love lost songs plenty of those and then he'd write about the underdog he'd write a, about uh you know coming of age and he would co- write about you know, reminiscent looking back at the past you know there was like themes he would use you know throughout throughout his whole career and there's just there's just so many so many good ones
0: it's so unusual to have that too right but when you've got you know you have great songwriters you have great vocalists, and again, I think he's underrated as a rock vocalist quite often because he was a phenomenal singer. And then you have great performers, and it's not often that those three all land at the same time, you know. And you've got Freddie Mercury, who would be a good example of that. And and I think that again, like like you said, having that sort of broad palette to choose from of songs that he could write, mm-hmm. and then get out on stage and perform. I was reading; I can't remember which book it. Maybe it's in. Was a conversations or Warren Zane's book, but we're talking about thinking about the way to deliver a song vocally and thinking right. about what the character is in that song always fascinated right. me. And that's because he, he changed the way he'd sing songs. I mean, he, you know, he had that Oh yeah. completely well, you see on the
1: first album, like there's several different voices he yes. uses in that first album. And you kind of just in the first album, you see him use these same style of singing on other songs all the way throughout his career. But he's capable of really doing the, the you know, kind of the nasally Bob Dylan type of song. But yep. then he can also turn it around and sing something more melodic. And and then sometimes it's more country, a little more grittier in the voice. And sometimes it's a little more affected where it's like uh, yep. he's hitting things more. and Or, you know, sometimes he'll be singing at the upper edge of his octave where he has to really push his voice to really get that r- real, uh, you know, uh, emotion that kind of comes out when you hit that and you know people you're like you said on one of your previous shows people don't give him a lot of respect for being like a great singer but he's able to use his vocal talents to you know an amazing range of of uh styles his phrasing was impeccable like the way he could he could take his lyrics and and phrase it you know in just the right way to where it works out it just works out for the song and you see so many people cover his songs that don't they don't have the phrasing right you know they don't they don't they will do it differently than he did it and it's not as good yeah and you don't it's one of those things that's very underrated in music in general is being able to take a lyric but then get it to fit the song in a certain way and he was really really good at that
0: Better than anybody, maybe. I I totally agree. And and it was funny because in the last episode in American Girl, when he sings Balcone, that's not how you you say balcony. No one says it that way, but it it has to be that way in that song because it it punches harder and it fits the cadence of where he's going musically. It's so clever. Like, it really is. It's so clever to take that jump to just say, well, yeah, I'll just sing it that way. That's going to work. And I think that may be a little bit sort of Florida, but it's not no 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 one no, yeah, it, no one pronounces it that
1: way so it's that's a choice that's a so the deliberate conscious choice to do that right right there is some of those florida things that yeah. get in there where you'll say certain words a certain way but like you listen to Roger McGuinn's version of american girl and it's it's not the same thing it doesn't it doesn't work no. like the, like tom's version and some of it is just those little things that make it make it fit so that i mean maybe bob dylan is better than tom was but at that at the phrasing but i don't know it's uh it's a it's an art i don't i guess you can learn it but i think he had a certain special something that allowed him to to do that and it affected every single song he ever did because it's it's always there you know listening to to john scott about how close it was to being done right like six weeks like huh? the six last weeks right and it the, and it and they that was like a long time that they gave them. Like today you don't even have that much time to like get it together and make it work. And you know, there's, it's such a short attention span and a short leash that people are given. And, uh, luckily, um, Tom had, was able to, you know, get some, get some hits and, and they did give him time in the studio to, to figure things out and, and explore and figure, you know, learn how to, how to do it. And, uh, you know that was Denny Cordell, yeah. and um, you know having a little faith and uh, giving him a little time to to get his feet wet in that um, in that different. It's a completely different art than um, you know just performing.
0: Um, okay, the last question in the, the quick fire round, which is taking what about half an hour. Yes. <laughs> um, describe Tom Petty in three words.
1: Genuine. creative and uh awesome
0: <laughs> i love it i love it right on man okay so we'll finish up i just wanted to sort of give you the chance to tell my listeners about and i'll probably cut out some of the preamble that we had but about your podcast um and about some of the things that you're doing anything you've got that you want to get people to listen to outside of the tom petty universe
1: I mean, outside of the Tom Petty universe, um, you know, I, I run a website, beer of the day.com. If you're into craft beer, um, we feature a different beer every day of the week. So if you so- follow us on social media at beer of the day, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, we have a podcast too, that we, we come out with about once a month, but for the past six years, we've been featuring a, a different beer every day and we're up to, you know, several thousand now. And, um, it just kind of celebrates the craft beer around the country and around the world. You know, we do beers from everywhere. So, uh, check that out if you like craft beer, um, completely not Tom Petty related, but you know, it's, it's something I'm into. Right on, man. Um,
0: well, it's been fantastic talking to you. Um, I I love that we have this community of people who are sort of brought together by something we all love and that we can also have the technology to talk across, you know, I don't know Well, we're probably about, two thousand ish kilometers i would say probably um and we found out that we share a lot of things in common and we've had a great time and i think that moving forward i'm really looking forward to doing this again um with different people and hopefully and then in fact no i'm not going to say hopefully i'm gonna say definitely i'm gonna get you back on later on in the in the uh, podcast run and we'll see where things are and um yeah that's probably about it i'm always terrible at finishing interviews I was going to trail well, off and just start talking absolute nonsense. <laughs>
1: well, you could just cut in one of the sound uh, the 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 bu- the bumpers there yes. and you're good.
0: <laughs> so that's another episode wrap folks. I really hope you enjoyed that. Um I certainly had a, a great time talking to Dallas. Um It turned out that we have a hell of a lot in common, um, besides Tom Petty's music. So it was a a really easy conversation to have with someone that I really enjoyed talking to. And I hope that eventually when I get back to California, I can touch base and and enjoy a a delicious craft beer with at some point. Um, Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, um, or any of those that, that you're on. It's at The Tom Petty Project, or on Twitter it's at Tom Petty Project. And please leave a review or a rating if you haven't so far. If you're enjoying the podcast, again, please help me spread the word by sharing this episode or any of the other episodes on your social media. Um, I'll put a few links in the episode notes to some of the songs that Dallas and I discussed, as well as a YouTube playlist of his last DJ set, which is a great five-song combo. Remember to DM me if you'd like to come onto the podcast to talk about Tom or a specific album or a favorite concert experience you had, honestly. I just love talking to other Tom Petty fans. Until we meet again next week, Keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week to talk about a track from the official live leg album, Dog on the Run. Not to be confused with Dogs on the Run. Uh, That episode was actually dedicated to Paul Roberts, who reached out on Facebook to ask me if I was going to talk about it. So I decided that I would do Out of Sequence. Bye-bye (音楽) guitar solo